I decided to quit my job at Apple and go into the company full time. I named it Data Geek. I registered in corporations and I think I'm going to be a billionaire. <laughs> Unfortunately, the reality of starting a company is never what we imagine. I eventually just ended up struggling a lot. Building the product, finding the co-founders, hiring my employees, closing a couple of customers. I was struggling so much that I ended up becoming homeless. I got <laughs> kicked out of my apartment complex. I was sleeping in my car for about a month. And then after that, my car got repossessed. Oh, like nobody told me this is what entrepreneurship was going to look like. <laughs> Today's guest speaking to the African continent is none other than Eunice Ajim, Cameroonian American tech entrepreneur and investor who is changing the game. With her fund, Ajim Capital, she seeks to invest in Africa's best startups at the pre-seed and seed level, leveraging her experience as a former repeat founder herself, including leading a 10 million plus tech startup. But what many may not know is her story of becoming homeless while building what she calls the African dream. Eunice's story is not just a quick cheat sheet into investing in Africa, which by the way, has had 51 private equity exits in the last 10 years with 478 deals worth 8.6 billion but real talk on how hard it is to still build in the emerging markets especially in these markets you don't want to miss this Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves. I'm Sergeant Spellings, and on the show, I travel across the globe in search of the unexpected leader. Every week, it is my job to deconstruct the billion dollar moves of unicorn founders and funders, many of them underestimated long before they became iconic. Many of them, unexpected leaders just like you. This show is about unfiltered conversations on success, failure, fear, and courage in the pursuit of the next big thing in tech adventure. Now, before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. About 80% of the listeners of this podcast have yet to hit the follow button. And it would really help me out if you would smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. The bigger the show gets, the bigger the guests get, and the more stories we can amplify across the global venture ecosystem so that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now, let's get started are actually, I believe, my first, as we're going global here on Billion Dollar Moves, you're one of my first to be talking about Africa. So the pressure is on, but I know you will rise to it, Eunice. So let, let's get started. Give us a little bit of context and context frame here. Who is this strong lady in front of us and why Africa? So I'm originally from Cameroon, out of Central Africa, born and raised. And I moved to the United States about 11 and a half years ago as an international student. I like to say that I'm always one who had big goals and big dreams of what I like to call my own version of the American dream. When you're just like a young kid coming out of a completely different continent into a new country, you're like, what should we do? And I went to school, graduated from college, and as an international student, you have to get a regular job. So I moved to Austin, got my first job at Apple. At the beginning, it was really fun. I'm like, man, I'm working for one of the biggest corporations in the U.S. But very early on, I just realized that the 9 to 5 was not for me. I was just like, there's no way I'm going to become a billionaire. Having a 9 to 5 job, I have to be a little bit more innovative. And I've always had small businesses. Nothing technology, always like break and mortar or like buying and selling. Not like I'm going to be innovative and I'm going to build a product. So in 2017... 
But when AI was booming, right, the AI that nobody really knew about it, people were talking about it, but they didn't really understand what it meant. And there was this thing about hiring data science professionals or data engineers. And I was doing data analytics at Apple. What if I'm like the Ubers and the Airbnbs and I build a marketplace that makes it easier to connect data science professionals with SMEs at a time, um, since the big guys are the ones that, you know, have access to these data engineers. I decided to quit my job at Apple and go into the company full time. I named it Data Geek. I registered in corporations and I think I'm going to be a billionaire. <laughs> Unfortunately, the reality of starting a company is never what we imagine. I eventually just ended up struggling a lot, building the product, finding uh, co-founders, hiring my employees, closing a couple of customers. I was struggling so much that I ended up becoming homeless. I got <laughs> kicked out of my apartment complex. I was sleeping in my car for about a month. And then after that, my car got repossessed. Whoa. Like nobody told me this is what entrepreneurship was going to look like. <laughs> but then I remember like, like, no matter what, I still had my $10 Planet Fitness uh, membership. I would still show up, right? go to the gym in the morning, go and take a good shower, put my makeup on, wear my suits, and then I would just show up to meetings. Um, one of those meetings eventually became just an investor that was just really excited about what we were doing. He was big in the data science and AI space, but he thought that I was maybe a little bit too early for the market and he was right. And he said, how about we build this other company, very similar concept, but for open source software. And I said, great. I mean, I'm struggling. <laughs> so anything will be better right now. So I closed the first company. I joined him and we launched the second one. Within six months, we raised a 650000 pre-seed. The next year, we grew the company to eight figures, raised another eight-figure seed round, and things just started getting better. And then 2020 happened. <laughs> In 2020, we just had, when everybody was just quitting their jobs and nobody really wanted to go back to work, we were growing startups. So we were trying to hire as many engineers as possible. And uh, we just had a hard time finding good qualified engineers in the US. And I said, why don't we hire in Africa? And like anybody else, my co-founder were just like, are there any software engineers in Africa? Like, is that a thing? And I said, yes, give me an opportunity and then we'll figure it out. I ended up bringing on a team of eight in three African markets. They were doing so good, but we also had other challenges. Finding them was a challenge. I had to tap into my network to find them. The second one was payroll. Each country has their own jurisdictions. There was no compliant or payroll <laughs> company that I could easily just go and set the contracts for all of them. Even payments at the end of the month, paying my employees was hard. I had to drive to the bank, wire the money, and it would take five to 10 business days for them to get their money. At the end of the month, not a good experience for the employee and not a good experience for the employer. And then I just started thinking, man, like I love my continent. I've always tried to figure out a way to bring Africa in what I do, but it looks bad when <laughs> I'm pushing it and like things are not working. So I started looking for solutions to fix those problems. And that was really my introduction to the African tech startup ecosystem. I realized that every company that I was finding were usually like early stage startups. And that involved, I started just getting excited, mentoring some of them. I joined a couple of in syndicate groups. I started angel investing a lot of my own personal money. By the end of 2021, my husband was in I'm sorry, but like, we don't make that much money. You can't keep investing in all these companies. And I was just, wait a minute, like my co-founders and I just raised a lot of money from VCs. How are these VCs raising money to invest in companies like myself? And I think my curiosity led to, oh, this is how this happens. What if? And at the time I looked around and I couldn't really find, there were not that many 
early stage VC investing in African tech businesses, despite the fact that the African continent has a huge market, huge population, connectivity and internet and like building technology is advancing so fast. But the number of VCs was still very low. So I said, you know what? I think I have a bigger calling. Like God has always shown me like a hundred ideas and this is the answer. He was never intended for me to build all of these companies. I think he wanted me to be the source and the resources to be able to multiply the impact across all these different entrepreneurs. So I remember so many people telling me that Eunice, there's no way you'll be able to raise a VC fund. You don't have the right connections or the network. You're a woman, you're young, you're African, you have a strong accent. Who is going to give you money? And I said, if there's one thing that always done is that when I put my trust in God and when God put something in my mind, I will always figure out a way. Even when challenges come, like I know he put me through those challenges for a reason. So in 2022, January, we made our public launch of Ajim Capital, being on being transparent and say, hey, my name is Eunice Ajim. This is my story. And here's why I'm launching a fund to invest in African tech companies. And I think the internet resonated with my story. And we got as many investors to reach out to us and say, hey, you're interested in investing. And that got us enough money to do a first close last yeah. June. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and Eunice, before we go into that, I want to zoom into two key points that I, I felt emerged for me in, in your introduction there. So one is your relationship with money which I always find interesting among our community of investors, right? We always come from a certain place which brings us into this career. And I'm curious to know, how was your upbringing in Cameroon that made you desire to be this billionaire? What was your relationship with money and has that evolved? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think in Cameroon, I don't think I grew up like poor. My dad was a hardworking entrepreneur as well. The business mindset definitely comes from him. My dad has always had this phrase that when he was still working for somebody, he was just working to build capital enough to go start his own company. So I think I've always resonated that with him. And even us growing up, he always takes us to all his businesses, show us negotiations, show us like how to buy merchandises and be able to sell them at a higher price. Growing up seeing my dad, seeing just how hardworking he came from like super, super poverty, small village in Cameroon, and then he grew a lot of his businesses to something meaningful today. And I've always said, you know what, like I want to grow up and be just like my dad, if not better, just given the opportunities that I have been able to get that he might have not had growing up. So I think that's the idea. And I'm just somebody who has big ambitions. And I think that's probably the thought of, I think I want to become a billionaire comes from. Yeah, love it. And of course, then you put your African dream into the American dream, you arrive and you you decided, okay, let's quit the nine to five because it's not working out for me. I'm not an employee, I'm the boss, but then you become homeless. How do you turn things around from being homeless with, of course, that $10 uh, Planet Fitness membership and turn it around to say, let's keep going. Let's keep going. This is not a time to give up. To be quite frank, I don't know how I went through it. There was a lot of tears and I think I've just always been independent, right? Like people are like, why didn't you just call your dad? I'm sure he could have sent me rent money. If anybody knows me, I'm super independent. I didn't want to be a burden to anybody. I could have asked friends, hey, can I stay with you? <laughs> and I eventually did. But in the, the initial one, I was just like, hey, I'm on my own. I made this decision. I remember so many people telling me, hey, don't leave your job. Make sure you have enough savings before going into entrepreneurship. And I pretty much didn't listen. I think when you have that burning fire inside of you, and I like to use God just I'm a big believer. I'm just like, hey, like if God put this in my mind, it's not 
it's something negative. It's literally to build something meaningful that will change the lives of millions. Who am I to say no? And I think every single time when I was going through those really, really hard times, there was just this little voice that always told me, hey, Ines, after the rain and the thunder, this rainbow and your rainbow is coming. Nothing good comes easy in life. And if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So just hang in there, keep showing up. Eventually things will change. And so you decided, unlike many others who decided to solve a problem in the region, you know, a specific problem, you decided to solve many problems as an investor. And of course, the criticism of VCs that are so young is, wait a minute, you haven't even listed a company. Who are you to give me advice? What do you say to that? And, and why you as the investor for early stage startups in Africa? Yeah, I mean, I, I might have not listed a company, but I've built I think what I like to think is somewhat is still alive. It's a successful company. It's, it's doing well. And I might have not listed a company or have gone through an M&A or an acquisition. But I still think, especially when people tell me that, and I'm like, well, there are a lot of wealthy men or women out there that are capable to just get money from their family members and they raise a VC fund and that deploying the capital without ever even starting a company. So at least I have some of the credentials. I have the background. I understand the market. And I know what it's like to build a company and to fail. And also to build a company and to be successful. And I've had even people tell me like, hey, why don't you go and work for like another venture capital fund? And I said, well, the experience of working for another venture capital fund is different from like working for yourself. Like I get to make mistakes, rise from that and learn from it. And, and I'm not in this business for like two to three years. I'm in this business for the rest of my life. Yeah. And if it's going to take me the rest of my life to define that, okay, there's an opportunity to invest in African tech companies, I will do that. Plus, at the time, it wasn't going to be an African tech VC. It was going to be like a US VC that maybe wants to have a small allocation in Africa. And I wanted to make sure that my impact is defined on the African continent. So my purpose is to invest in Africans in Africa, serving the African market. What drove you to have that conviction? And, and tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing in Africa, especially in early stage in the context of this market. I think we all have seen a digital revolution in the US in the last 20 to 30 years. We have seen the remarkable impact. Some of the OG companies today, the Apple, the Amazon, the Tesla, right? All the big companies that we see today, 20 to 30 years earlier, they were all tech startups. They were all struggling to fundraise. They all had one single idea. It's now like trillions of dollars of businesses. I think we have seen a very similar revolution happen in Europe, in China, in Latin, and in a lot of other emerging markets over the years. And I think the only place that I would say, that, like I like to call it the last frontier, is really in Africa, right? For the longest time, I mean, 10 years ago, even though smartphones were already a thing in the US 10 years ago, when I was leaving Cameroon, I didn't have a smartphone, right? I still had a flip flop. I didn't have access to internet connection. My phone was literally to receive and to get calls. But today, 10 years later, Something that happened over 10 years in the U.S. is now happening in the U.S. where like all my family members have smartphones. Even my grandparents have smartphones. They can get on WhatsApp. They all have Facebook and social media platforms. My brother was here in the U.S. He graduated with a computer science degree, moved to Cameroon to build a tech company to be able to make it easy for you, for schools to be able to manage everything on a single application. And now the, the teachers have access to that. They can get a report card of their kids from this technology, right? So 
it's only now that we're seeing that happen in Africa. This, a lot of these things have already been invented in the U.S. They're already common in the U.S., but that's happening in Africa right now. And I think as these businesses start to grow, they will need the funding, they will need the guidance, they will need the resources to be able to take those companies from point A to point B to point C. I don't know if it's going to become as, you know, as crazy as the U.S. where we've seen the $100 billion valuations or the $50 billion valuations, but I know there are opportunities there just as much to invest in Africa now more than ever. My hope is that that actually contributes to a big economic change in most African countries. So obviously, Africa, like many emerging markets, are going through a phenomenal change, a phenomenal time with uh, digital penetration, right? So mobile use is at all-time high in many ways. I always say, comparing to markets that are established like America, where there's so many legacy systems, there's an opportunity to actually leapfrog. So you're seeing it in payments, you're seeing the young, really engaged so social media a lot of these themes that you are investing in uh, what particular sector are you most bullish about fintech has been the biggest one as of year like 70 percent of my portfolio is still in fintech and it's only because i mean financial infrastructure is always the initial infrastructure whenever you're building an ecosystem like if you can transact online then you can really do anything on the internet so payment systems, uh, banking the own banks, digital banks, like all of those had to be built. Um, Cross-border payments, a lot of these different things had to be, the foundation had to be built for now other sectors to be built on top. I would say after fintech, something that I'm super bullish about is marketplaces. Both of my companies were marketplaces. So figuring out ways to reach the gap between a buyer and a supplier or a problem and a solution and then being the platform to make that easy is something that I'm seeing a lot happen in the a lot of African continents. Are you pretty much taking a generalist approach and opportunistic based on the stage? Are you thinking about geography? Of course, we, we talk about Africa as though it's a monolith, which we know it's not. Let's talk a little bit about that and how are you thinking about your portfolio allocation, your thesis for the fund to be able to make that, you know, great return for your LPs? Yeah, definitely. I know, like, yeah, we say Africa a lot, but not every African country is ready for the technological advancement or the technological adoption as much as some countries. Even I say sub-Saharan Africa as of right now, but I'll probably prioritize the big four or the big three in sub-Saharan Africa, which is Nigeria. 70 to 80% of my portfolio right now is in Nigeria. And there are many reasons for that, right? Nigeria's population is over 220 million. The tech adoption there is like crazy. It has a huge young entrepreneurial market and a big adoption to technology. Kenya is my next one. I've invested in quite a few companies in Kenya as well, very similar to Nigeria. They're also adopting technology really well. We have looked at a few other markets like Ghana, maybe Cote d'Ivoire when it comes to Francophone Africa. So we're really picking the African countries where we believe are really growing fast when it comes to tech adoption. So those are the ones that we're focusing in. And obviously, from a stage perspective, we only invest in pre-seed and seed. And when it comes to sector, again, in general, we'll really focus on B2B. Just because I would say the purchasing power for consumers are still very low. So we put a lot more of our trust into like businesses versus a B2C product. We only focus on software companies to grow from one city in Nigeria to another city and then expand that to another country can be very challenging when you have a hardware or a physical component versus when it's just a software where we just have to implement that into another country. So those are some of the things that like we look at when we're making the decision. Another yeah. thing at the baseline
line of our thesis is my team and I has built, I'll say, a report um, and our analysis of a little bit over 300 business models that we have seen being successful in the US, in Europe, in China, in India, in Latam, specifically those places. And we just think that if those exact business models have been able to be successful in all these different markets, it's only a matter of time before they arrive in the African continent. So we're always on the lookout for those specific business models. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Oh, I love it. So pretty much in terms of deal sourcing, you've got a template of the 300 business models that you're looking for and identifying through your networks and things like that. Tell me a little bit about your deal sourcing mechanism. I understand you've got a team in Africa, but of course you're based here in the US, you travel quite a fair bit. How, how does that work? How are you thinking about making sure that you get the best of the best in the region? We have two strategies when it comes to deal flow, we've got our inbound strategy and our outbound strategy. I'll say we get a lot of our deal flow from our inbound strategy and we still invest. The majority of our investment was from our inbound strategy and 20 to 30% was from our outbound strategy. Our inbound strategy is like we're big on marketing. Only been business for a year and a half, but if anybody says who is investing in Africa, Ajim Capital will probably come up in the conversation because we've done a really good job at doing our best to educate founders on like how to build a successful companies in the African context. We get a lot of deal flow from inbound, just people finding us on the internet. Just last year, we received about 2,500 applications just from our inbounds. Wow. Just people reaching out and saying, okay, like we're looking for investment. This year, we're roughly about a thousand and some change, which is still pretty good just in terms of like the companies that are coming to us and we review every single one of them. From our outbound strategies, we have a lot of local partners, angel groups, VCs, syndicates, part of every African VC network you can possibly think of. We collaborate with a lot of other VCs. They send us uh, their deals that I think will be a fit for what we're looking to invest in and we do the same. So that's like a good part of our outbound strategy. And obviously our founders, like we always make sure that our founders feel comfortable sending us the flow. So we also get a lot of the flow from some of the founders before they invested in. So pre-seed and, and seed, very early stage where arguably it, it's hard to see the level of traction in certain spots where, you know, because it's B2B, right? There's a lot more work that goes into that in terms of the sales cycle, things like that. How do you pick the winners and uh, how do you ensure they continue to do well? How do you support them in your portfolio? Yeah, so initially, I say this a lot and I have never shied away from it. We don't invest in ideas. We don't invest in just MVPs. We invest in products with traction. No matter how amazing the team is, you will see a lot of deals here in the US where somebody can raise, I don't know, crazy amounts of money at really high valuation with barely a product. I will not do that. <laughs> On average, my investment have anything between 5000 in monthly recurring revenue to 50000 in monthly recurring revenue by 
the time I'm investing. And that's the pre-seed and seed in Africa. That's just the reality of the game. Then when it comes to like value add at this early stage, I tell people that I don't take board seed. I plan on investing in a lot more companies. I'm going more for a larger portfolio construction than a concentrated portfolio construction. I'll probably invest in 60 to 80 companies by the end of the fund. So there's no way I'm going to be heavily, heavily invested with all my portfolio companies. But some of the things that we do with them is we have a podcast called Live the African Dream. So every single time we invest in one of our portfolio companies, we bring them on the show. We make sure they share their stories and then we spread that around to like our network of investors. We spread it on all of our social media platforms. We've had a lot of our portfolio companies tell us that they've received either customers, investors, or just like partners or employees from those podcasts. But we also do a lot of work at, I have a list of 2,500 venture capitalists in the US with exactly the kind of companies that they invest in, like what sectors. I've spoken to a good amount, obviously not all the 2,000, but whenever like my portfolio companies are raising, when I deploy capital into your company, I make sure that I bring them at least one or two other VCs to come on the deal. And I think that's like one of the most important value add in my perspective. What sort of valuations are we seeing these days in African companies at the seed and pre-seed stage? At a pre-seed stage, I'll say on average, my post-money valuation is 3 million. At a seed stage, my post-money valuation is anything between 8 to 10 million. And how are you seeing market conditions now? I mean, both from, a, I guess, deal flow is one, but also fundraising, because obviously you're doing this publicly. You've got a 506C structure. So you can speak about it publicly. How is the current market dynamic affecting both deal flow and fundraising for you as a fund? (laughs) This is the hardest part. I think last year was actually really good. The first two quarter of like 2022 were really good. That's probably where we raised the majority of our fund. And that was with our announcement, doing a first close and all of that. I will say the last 12 months have been very challenging. The amount of money that we've been able to bring in is not as much as I would have loved to have had by now. But I also understand that the current market condition is not helping. Remember that I'm an entrepreneur and I'm patient and I I know that, right? But I think like I always try to figure out different ways to be able to still deploy a little bit of capital, maybe not as fast and as much as I would have loved to. So we're still investing, but we're probably investing way less than we'd have loved to invest. On average, last year, we're doing about three to four deals per quarter. This year, we're doing more like one to two deals per quarter. Still fundraising, putting the word out there. And I think we're in this for the long-term game. We might... And we've spoken to a lot of our LPs about that, like, okay, like, what if things happen and we can raise all the money? We're very comfortable reducing a little bit the, the limit of the fund. But again, I'm a big believer in God and I think, like, things can change in one day. And I'm very confident that, you know, we'll still be able to, like, get to that finish line. And just being frank and being transparent, VCs don't make that much money, especially emerging VCs. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and we've talked about this in, on the show, right? It's a 220 model. If you're raising a 10 million fund, 2% of that, that's not much to go by. And considering the costs and everything. So you really need to be in this business for the right reasons. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, and I've done the same thing, like figure out like different strategies to still be able to like get some income coming in. Like, for example, like we've had partnerships with some corporate partners to put events together. We've had different ways to be able to like still survive and keep the community going without necessarily worrying too much about the deployment or like the, the fundraising part of things. Yeah. So, of course, we're seeing this in the US as well. And it's often been said one of the main reasons actually that startups fail is they don't raise enough money or they don't get to where they need to get to with revenues and all that. Are you seeing a wipeout 
in African startups, those that you were monitoring have decided, okay, I can't do it anymore. What is happening that we need to know about Africa and maybe being specific to the different countries as well? To be quite frank, I'm actually surprised, right? I was expecting to see a lot more companies shut down. I have definitely seen a few, none that I had my eyes on. No company that I'm like, ah, I wanted to invest now, they shut down. Like, I haven't had that experience personally, but I have seen a couple of announcements either from like my co-VCs or just from founders posting on Twitter that unfortunately they had slows because they either couldn't raise more money or one or the other. A lot of my portfolio companies, thank God, have a little bit of like runway. The lowest that I've seen as of today is about six months. For those, I'm just like really focused on doubling down, maybe let go of some employees right now that you don't think might be necessary to keep on payroll. And we've also tried to figure out other ways out of the box, like for example, like grants, accelerator programs. And in terms of country to country specificity, is there anything in terms of what's changed that will affect the startups? I think a lot has changed in Nigeria recently with the new government for example like the inflation is at the all-time high the exchange rate they used to call what is like the black market and the bank rate <laughs> now the government has to remove the black market and the regular rate and I've, we've had a lot of like portfolio companies said that it will affect the way they report their revenue obviously because many of them report in dollars because most of them have u.s investors so that is a big change that we have seen there's a lot of inflation in many african countries homes prices going really up. Different things that we see here, to be quite frank, are also happening in Africa, in most African markets. Yeah. And which is where I guess the risk element and the perception of risk is high on the radars of LPs that are looking into Africa that just don't understand it and are even now pulling back, right? Because it's becoming even uh, more challenging for them. So how are you educating your investors at this time? What are you saying in terms of risk mitigation when the risk is, is truly Hi. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, right? I had this conversation with my husband yesterday. With everything happening in the U.S., like I can only imagine what people think about when I tell them about investing in the whole other continent. And I'm an investor too. Like a lot of my money is invested in this fund and it's invested in a lot of companies that I've invested even out of like SPVs or like angel syndicates. I recognize that times are challenging. I sympathize. I sympathize and empathize with a lot of my current investors. It's a long-term game. I understand that right now I need a, a lot more education and to be quite frank, I have been doing the education. So there's only so much education I can do. Tell them of like what is happening in the African market. I mean, talk about Ibanco, talk about Collect Africa. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing despite market conditions. You know, I, I think the reality is with LPs, right? We're looking at business models where the cost of capital for the last decade has been zero. So obviously certain models no longer work. But how does this reflect in Africa and use your portfolio company to demonstrate this? Okay, so I'm going to tell about one that I'm actually very bullish on. Last year, I invested in a company called Renes. Renes is a payroll tech company. Remember, I had a problem about payroll earlier. And in June of last year, when I met Victor, Victor, I think is more of a CTO than like a CEO. He built the whole product from scratch by himself. And the thing that I was so impressed with Victor is like he, he was 
an engineer at Andela. And one of the, and I'm not familiar with Andela, Andela is one of the unicorns in Africa that pretty much help you hire software engineers across the African continent. And one of the things that he realized in Andela is that even when they were hiring a lot of the software engineers across the continent, one of the things was like this company just didn't know, didn't understand how payroll was going to work when they bring on engineering, these engineers on the team. Victor went out and spoke to as many HR employees, not just at Andela, but at multiple companies as possible. Really understanding when you're hiring an engineer in Africa, what are some of the things that you want to see like in a product? And Victor had built an amazing product. Me as a client, I'm a client of Victor. Um, I was so blown away by the product that I invest, I decided to invest right there on the call and I've never done that. I've never committed to investing into a company right there. When I invested in Victor, he was doing roughly about three to five thousand in monthly recurring revenue and I could see the potential. I just knew that if he could get the right team to be able to go out there and sell the product, Victor could potentially become a unicorn founder. And I was not wrong. I still think it's a big opportunity that within six months, I helped them get into Texas. We really worked on refining the product. And I gave him a lot of feedbacks as a client. He went from roughly a few thousand dollars in monthly recurring revenue to 116,000 in six months in monthly recurring revenue. And as of today, one year later, he's doing roughly about 263,000 in monthly recurring revenue. And they're growing. Like they're still scaling and growing and businesses are still like finding out about him i think there's a huge potential there but he's an african tech company right yeah. so like this is just like one simple example of just like some of the amazing works it's like it's not so different from what we know here in the u.s those are the kind of companies i'm excited about yeah and, and Eunice, I'm, I'm curious about this point right you talk about sort of the copy cut paste model but of course we know coming from these different regions that we can't do that all the time and there's an intricacy which only local founders know is there a nuance for example using this example, so it sounds like Gusto, right? It's how does this compare to what a Gusto could do, right? Or any other competitor from the US could bring just the way that Uber did it in other markets? What people tend to forget is that Africa has 54 countries, right? It's not a monolith. Each country, like even with Rennes, right? Like it took time for him. Like, and I had employees in three African markets plus the UK. It took a while for him to like bring in Zimbabwe because Zimbabwe has very strict laws about cross-border payments, right? So like each African country have their own jurisdiction, each have their own government, each have languages that they, they speak, each have different currencies. Like for you and for you to be able to understand the nuances of like the exchange rate for each country, the regulation in each of those countries, it's not as easy as, oh, I'll just go and get a white label in India and then like build it. And I've realized that like founders that try to do the copycat model always end up failing because they see something working in the US and then they try to just bring exactly. One of the concerns for many emerging markets is where are the exits going to come from, right? Yeah. And w what what do you see for, I mean, of course, you're at the pre-seed seat, so it'll be a while. But of course, you're hoping that, you know, another VC picks up the deal, so on and so forth. How is the exit landscape for African founders? As of today, there are about eight, I'll say seven unicorns in the African market. So like, 
companies that have reached the billion dollar valuation, but we have a lot more when it comes to M&A. In fact, between 2021 and 2022, there were over 77.2 billion in M&A acquisition in Africa that nobody's speaking about. And a lot of this acquisition actually happened intra-African acquisition. So it was never like a big European company or a big US company coming and acquiring the African company. It was like a Nigerian company trying to expand to Kenya and acquiring their counterpart in that market or a private equity, which is actually the more popular private investment asset class in Africa, wanting like just going and acquiring a certain business and then just like expanding that business as a private equity model. One of my portfolio companies from my angel investment is actually going through an acquisition right now, but it is from a larger startup company that is trying to acquire this other smaller company that for I think it's something like 50 million. So it's not a lot of money, but it's still a big for like a 2021 investment. And I think the one that I'll actually see a lot more as we grow is secondaries. So as a pre-seed and seed investor, when we actually get larger VCs interest into the African market, I think I will do a lot of like my sales to like bigger investors when my companies reach either series B, C or D rounds. Yeah, love it. So, well, we're ending on an optimistic note that there is a lot more to be explored in Africa, the region, the startup ecosystem. Let's now go to the rapid fire round. Billion dollar questions. What's a book, podcast, or a piece of advice that has had a significant impact on your career, Eunice? Ooh, How to Influence People is one of my favorite books and will forever change my life. Like, it just teaches you how to, especially in the business that we're at today, building relationship with everybody, whether it's investors or founders. Like, that has had a big difference in um, the way I do business and the way I approach relationships. Give us a nugget there. I mean, it's one of my favorites as well, but I, I love to see what you pick out, you know, different people, different things resonate with different people. Oh, man. I think for me, like I always try to find maybe like a point, a common ground that like we're both interested in and just really dig into that. Another one is just being intentional about sharing my story, right? It's easier for you to be able to relate to me versus if I just came and I gave you straight facts because now you remember things that I have told you based off of the stories versus just like the facts. And I think yeah. like that's one thing that I actually use on a daily basis. Can you share a memorable aha moment from your career, whether that's in VC or as a founder? My launch for Agent Capital was just like way more than I expected. I think I, to be quite frank, I did not know what to expect. And the fact that it went so viral and we had that many inbounds from like just LPs and investors saying that are interested in investing in my phone was just God. <laughs> like, oh my God, like this was so unexpected, but like it was definitely a memorable experience that I would cherish for the rest of my life. Like just strangers on the internet, never knowing me, reaching out, speaking to me for like 15 to 30 minutes and say, okay, I'll wire the money tomorrow. I love that aha moment. I love that <laughs> Aha moment. The last one, when you look back upon your life and at the stairway of hopefully in heaven, <laughs> I think you'll go to heaven for sure. What would be the legacy of Eunice Ajim? That I made an impact in the life of millions and millions of Africans. And it will not be the kind of impact that, you know, people usually think about, but build as many entrepreneurs as possible, offer as many jobs to the average African as possible. Me going to bed knowing that has happened would just make me at peace because I think that's the purpose that God has put in my mind. 
Love it. Love it. And I, I truly appreciate how you are a faith-focused and faith-led leader, which we actually need a lot in today's world where it's increasingly complex and challenging. Eunice Ajim, thank you for your time. Thank you for all you do. And keep making billion-dollar moves. Amen. Yes. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chang Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to... Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. Million Dollar Moves. <laughs>